Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the After School Podcast with Dylan Mack. Today we're interviewing Mark Edelman, who is a law professor, attorney, and sports business expert. So today we talk all about how Mark Edelman got into his profession and the problems he faces today. If you'd like to support me more on this podcast, feel free to share or go to my Patreon page and donate there. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello, Mark. Uh, So thank you for coming on to the podcast with me. And, you know, just to start us off and tell us to our audience, like, who you are, what you do, you know, et cetera. Uh, well, Dylan, it's my pleasure to come on to your podcast. Uh, I am a tenured professor of law at Baruch College's City University of New York. Uh, in addition to my role on faculty there, uh, I also represent a good number of sports properties, including a major league baseball team uh, and a number of daily fantasy sports operators. Uh, and from the teaching side, Uh, A good amount of my teaching relates to legal issues that affect the um, professional and um, collegiate sports industries. Okay, great. So, Mark, really, just off the bat, like, so this is a question I ask all my, uh, all the people that come on the podcast. So imagine yourself right now, it's sophomore year of high school, right? It's after school, like, basically, what are you doing? What, What is kid you doing? Kid me. Okay, so if I'm 15 years old, uh, and I amazingly was not the kind of kid that got into any real trouble, I was probably doing one of two things. Uh, One was I honestly worked very hard in high school, Uh, so it's certainly possible that I had a book in front of me, uh, and I was studying for my classes. Uh, My number one release in life was playing sports, Uh, so it also is very possible that I was playing uh, on my high school tennis team, my high school soccer team. Uh, or just shooting some hoops with a bunch of friends um, outside of someone's house. Yeah, so actually, Mark, what is your favorite sport? Do you not really have one? Uh, my favorite sport is definitely baseball. Uh, baseball. Both to play and to watch. Uh, yes, even though that we're currently in the beginning of a Major League Baseball lockout, uh, the big joke, even in my home today, is even though I work in the sports industry, as compared to many of my friends, I'm much more open uh, to doing other things on the weekend and not watching every football game and not needing to watch every Knicks game. Uh, but magically, right around April 1st, when the baseball season begins, uh, until late October, when the World Series is over, uh, I tend to have my television uh, turn to the Mets game or whatever other local team is playing. Yeah, honestly, I don't know. I've never really gotten greatly into baseball. You know, my dad's always trying to get me into it, but I'm more of a basketball kind of guy. I actually usually got into sports like this year, actually. I wasn't always into sports when I was younger. So, but yeah, baseball's interesting. I know your dad's a big baseball fan. You know, it's an interesting generational thing. Um, people in my grandparents' generation and my parents' generation and even my generation were big baseball fans. <laughs> Uh, and the fact that you say you're into sports but not into baseball is not surprising. Uh, in fact, if we look at fan interest in Major League Baseball, uh, it really has declined. And it's really gone down. Oh, yeah. Uh, A lot of my, my grade, yeah. 
They don't like baseball. And it's not surprising. I mean, there are certain things that have kind of come to replace baseball for a lot of people in your generation. I mean, your interest uh, in soccer, both international soccer and major league soccer, is higher than previous generations. Uh, your generation's interest in esports uh, is higher than previous oh, generation. Yeah. That is something that was never seen before. And, you know, I'm scared for Major League Baseball as a sport. I mean, as of three days ago, uh, Major League Baseball went on to a lockout, which means they're shutting down all operations temporarily. And this is uh, as of December 5th, yes. As of December 2nd, yes. Oh, 2nd, 2nd, sorry, yeah. Second, today is the 5th, to try to get players to accept lower salaries. Uh, and from my view, uh, this is a sport that's already struggling to get your generation of fans. I mean, you told me that you don't really watch baseball, even though your father is passionate about it. Uh, the last thing this sport should be doing is risking shutting down games and perhaps further alienating or disinteresting people in your age group who you're going to become a baseball fan. It's probably going to be now. It's probably not going to start to happen later in life. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, was, I mean, so like, so like you said that you're a professor, but then also you said you're an attorney, basically, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, I went to law school. Uh, yeah. In fact, I have four degrees. I have an undergraduate degree. Uh, I have a law degree. I have a degree in sports business, and I have a degree in higher education administration. Uh, so what I did spent... you learn in like? Oh yeah, sorry. Keep going. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. This is your show. <laughs> so like when you say sports business like i actually like like what do you learn in like like legal like contracts like stuff like that like, like what is it basically well honestly most of my knowledge of contracts came from law school uh when i was at the university of michigan for law school and i did my law degree during the day uh, i got a degree in sports business at night uh sports business programs teach a lot of the same things that general business programs do which is management marketing finance uh, however, they cast all of that from the perspective of one particular industry, uh, the sports industry. Now, you do not need to study sports business uh, to be very successful on the business side of sports. To be very frank, um, simply going to an undergraduate school with a good business program, uh, like Penn, where I did my undergraduate degree, or Harvard, uh, probably will open up a lot more doors to people than getting a sports business degree. But I was already at the University of Michigan. And I already had a business undergraduate degree. Uh, and I thought it would be fun and interesting to take a look at an industry that I was passionate about and learn more about it just from an industry perspective. Yeah, so that's interesting. So when you were, like, younger, graduating from high school, you always, like, when did you know you wanted to be in law in general? Uh, you know, from the time I was young, I was interested both in the sports industry and working in law. Uh, from a young kid, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but probably not for the right reasons. Uh, you know, I used to watch on TV shows like The People's Court or uh, shows like L.A. Law, uh, and it seemed interesting to me. Oh, yeah. That I was kinda, yeah. I think for the wrong reasons, because any of these TV shows do not necessarily depict what the day-to-day -day job is. And the biggest mistake that people make when they say they want to go into law is most of law is not arguing before a judge. Uh, most of law is writing. But it's an analytical job. You have to think. Uh, you really have to help your client and advocate on behalf of them. Sometimes you even get to advocate on behalf of people who really believe in and share their concerns. Uh, so, I mean, over the course of my career uh, as an attorney, I've been able to push the law and push um, 
the legal treatment of college athletes from a point in time in which they were denied any economic compensation uh, to today, where their rights are somewhat better from an economic perspective and still need continue to be reformed. Uh, and that to me is incredibly rewarding. So did you ever, when you were you know, younger, think, like you said, you always kind of wanted to be a lawyer, but did you ever think you could combine sports and being a lawyer at the same time? Or was it more like sports kind of just was like, an afterthought, and then it came to you like you could actually do sports business, or was it always yeah. the start? From day one, I wanted to work in the sports industry. In fact, one of the factors that drove me to law school was I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School, and things are different now. Uh, nowadays, as you go through college, there's a whole world of people that are statistically minded who go to work in analytics for the sports teams, and it's a growing profession. Uh, but back when I was finishing up college, if you wanted to work in sports, there were really two avenues to do it. And this was before the analytics craze, which has created a great third avenue. Yeah. At my point in time, it was either go to a sports team, start by selling tickets and try to work your way up the marketing route, uh, or alternatively go to law school and try to come over to a team or a league or a players association on a much higher level. And the way I looked at things from my perspective was, you know, I just got this degree from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. I was very book smart. I was certainly able to perform well in school and thought I could continue doing so. I did not know if I necessarily had skills that would make me distinctly good as a salesperson or as a marketing person. And I looked at the fact that I wanted to work at sports. I looked at my strengths and my weaknesses uh, as a student and as a human being, and I felt my best shot of breaking into the sports industry uh, would be good to, to go the law route, because I knew there were plenty of jobs, not a lot, but plenty of jobs uh, for lawyers at the league level, the players association level, and at the team level. For me, that seemed like a great step. And your parents were completely supportive as well at the time? That's an interesting question. Uh, my parents were very supportive of me going to law school. Uh, they thought that was wonderful. And the first job I got when I graduated from law school was at Skadden Arps, which is a large law firm, where I went to do antitrust and sports work. So uh, what Skadden is antitrust? Antitrust. Antitrust is a really interesting area. Antitrust is, you know, the United States is a capitalist country. Mm. And as a capitalist country, uh, we want companies to be able to compete with one another. Uh, so if we think about the way the marketplace is supposed to work, uh, competitors are supposed to strive to make the best product at the lowest price. Uh, so, for example, you would expect Apple and Google to compete against each other to make the best phones. In baseball, consumer, yeah. you would expect the, 32, the 30 Major League Baseball teams to compete against each other to sign players. Well, when instead of competing against each other, the competitors start to work together. Uh, the idea of competitors working together would be known as a trust which is an anti-competitive arrangement. Instead of having competition, uh, they might be price-fixing at a higher rate or agreeing to lower wages. So antitrust is against this behavior, which is mean trying to break up trusts and support things that would be good for the free market, good for consumers. So when you say antitrust, you mean for, you mean for sports, right? Uh, yes, I mean, my interest was foremost in the sports industry. But to be a good sports antitrust attorney, uh, you really have to first be an antitrust attorney. Uh, so when I went to SCAD and I was in the antitrust group, 
and I worked on antitrust matters related to sports. I also worked on antitrust matters not related to sports. Now, back to your earlier question, my parents were very supportive of that. I always looked at this as being a beginning, not an end. And my goal was to eventually break away from big firm and become a professor. And really, one of my motivations to become a professor was, you know, when I did sports law work for SCAD, our clients were the teams, and I was advocating on behalf of the teams or on behalf of the league, and I think it was a very good functional lawyer. But the problem of being at a firm is you don't get to advocate for what you believe in. You're supposed to be representing a client. The beauty of academia is you can write on any issue you want from any perspective that you want. You have academic freedom. You don't have to be advocating for a particular side. So you can be advocating for the consumer or for the sports fan. So my parents had a lot of difficulty accepting the fact when I left Big Firm uh, to become a professor. They knew what my salary was working for a big law firm. Uh, they knew that the salaries that the big firms paid their people was more money than they had ever made in life. Uh, and for them, the thought of me walking away from that kind of money to go teach uh, was concerning for them. I think they were concerned that my life would not be as good in the long run uh, if I decided to take a job that was not going to pay me the same level of compensation. I mean, they were entirely wrong. I knew what I loved. I knew what I was passionate about. And I find people, when they pursue their passions, are happier in the long run. Yeah, uh, they want it, then you can get it. This calculation. So did you have to convince them, like sit down with them and be like, like hey, like this is like, like I'm, I really want to do this? Or did you just do it and like show them the results? And you made them you know, by the time I left Big Firm, I was already in my late 20s. Uh, so at that point, you know, I was already living on my own. Uh, I was renting an apartment in Manhattan. I paid all my own bills. Uh, and, you know, I love my parents and their opinions matter to me. Uh, but one of the things you're going to find in life as you get older is your parents' opinions might not change, uh, but their ability to really control the decisions that you make change quite a bit. I mean, once you get to the point in life that you've graduated from college and your parents are no longer financially supporting you, uh, at that point, I mean, you really can make your own decisions. And, I mean, that's just part of growing up. And, I mean, if I were 19 and said I wanted to drop out of college, the question would become who would financially support me. It would be very necessary for me to get my parents on board with what I wanted to do. But once you reach the point in life that you're financially self-sufficient, you know, you never want to disappoint the people that you love uh, but they're not able to, you don't necessarily need to get them on board the same way once you reach a certain point in life. So you started out, you know, traditional, and then you're saying you moved over to being a professor, and you said you write, like, law journals, right, basically, or, like, law articles? Or is that... That's right. I've written a lot of law journals. Uh, yeah, I've so... two books. Wow. So, so how does this... So yeah, explain your process if you can to the best of your ability about like, like how do you get like started even on like a law article and like even I if think, it, if you're done with that, it, it's an interesting yeah. question, a problem for a lot of academics. Now, 
the biggest difference, and I know you're in high school now, the biggest difference um, between high school teachers and college professors uh, is when you go to school, your teachers teach your classes, then they go home and grade, and that's the thrust of their job. The biggest difference on a college or graduate school level is while you only see, for the most part, your professors when they teach their classes, uh, teaching at many institutions is just a small part of the professor's job. Uh, the professor will spend as much time, if not more time, uh, away from students' writing. And for a lot of professors, the how do I get started is a problem. I mean, there are a lot of professors that find themselves in and out of academia because they can never sit down and write. Uh, for me, the truth is uh, I follow the sports industry closely. Uh, a lot of what I write about is related to consumer welfare and to player welfare in sport. And my biggest challenge is never coming up with what to write. Uh, my biggest challenge is that I can't write on everything I want to write on. Yeah, and I never sat there asking myself, and I think a lot of this is because I chose a field that I'm so passionate about. Uh, so it's never a matter of, uh-oh, what could I write on? It's a matter of, there are so many things I want to say. Uh, so how do you pick and choose think, then? Yeah. Which one do I think I can make the greatest difference on? Now, in the beginning uh, of any professor's career, uh, they need to think about, how do I get tenured? Which means, how do I get to keep this job for life? How could I write something that will get positive attention? I'm on the far end of tenure. Now, what that means is, barring doing something illegal or embarrassing or detrimental to the school, uh, the job I have at the City University of New York at Baruch uh, is my job for life. Uh, tenure is pretty much freedom from getting fired based upon your research. You can only get fired at this point with tenure uh, if you do something that would be considered to be a bad act in some way or did not show up for my job. Uh, so at this point, and I still write very extensively, uh, my question is, what do I want to change? So for the past several years, not all, but a good amount of my writing uh, has been antitrust and labor law focused related to college sports. I believe there's something fundamentally wrong when the colleges in our country come together and pass rules that say college athletes, even the ones that bring in millions of dollars of revenue for their schools, don't get paid. Don't get paid. And I've used a good part of my past few years uh, to write from a very hopefully sophisticated antitrust and labor law perspective uh, about why the NCAA's policies are illegal, immoral, need to change for a matter of law, need to change as a matter of fairness. Uh, sometimes we look at it through social justice and racial justice lenses. Sometimes we look at them through economic effects lenses and antitrust lenses. Uh, but a lot of what I've done over the past few years uh, has been to try to push from a very academic way uh, for social change in this area. So what I'm wondering is, it seems you're almost more like individual, if you understand what I mean. Like you're you're writing based on your own like opinion opinions. Is that the right word? Like I think that's fair. I mean, you know, the word opinion can mean a lot of yeah. Words. It's like a it's a fuzzy word. Yeah, but... and it's such an interesting word. I agree with you, Dylan. It's a fuzzy word um, because on one hand, everybody is entitled to an opinion. 
Uh, on the other hand, not all opinions are equal. So, you know, there are people out there that run around with opinions that have never studied anything, um, but what they're calling their opinions, and opinion's the right word, is really knee-jerk reaction. Now, a law journal article will be 50 pages, if not more in length, and it will cite a whole lot of content that's already out there. Uh, so if I do what I do effectively, on one hand, it's an opinion, and yes, everybody's allowed to have opinion, uh, but the opinion needs to be grounded in legal analysis. It needs to be grounded in factual discovery. It needs to be grounded so, in a lot of research. And that only comes from spending years looking at things. So, Mark, when you write something, how do you get it published? Like, is it like do other people have to review it for you, or is it more like now, now at this point in your life, they trust you and you, it just gets like published, you know? You know, Dylan, that's, a fast, that's a fascinating question. You know, in the law review world, there are a few different ways to get published. Uh, one are journals that your peers, which are other professors, will review. And you're supposed to submit the material blind, meaning that you're not supposed to know your name and they're only supposed to read the work. Uh, and that's supposed to be pure content-based. Uh, the reality is I've been doing this for long enough that it's difficult to find anyone who's an expert on the topic uh, that doesn't have a sense of my writing style and voice. Uh, we also have law review articles, which uh, pretty much all of the law schools in the country will have a journal, and the law students review the articles and decide what to publish. Uh, that, again, is supposed to be chosen based on content. Uh, but it's all content. Yeah, but interestingly, at this point in my career, uh, I've gotten to the point where sometimes journals reach out to me. And wow. sometimes they ask me uh, if I am willing to write an article. Now, that generally doesn't happen to people in the early stages. Now, one that stands out to me is there was a big Supreme Court ruling a few years ago uh, that for the first time allowed new states to legalize sports gambling. Uh, that's the reason why we see online sports gambling now in New Jersey. And we might very well see online sports gambling in New York within the next year or so. Uh, well, when that decision came down, uh, the, the editors of a law review, which are, called, which are law students at George Mason University, probably sat down and said, we'd love to have an article on this. Uh, who is the national expert or who are a few of the national experts? And I got an email from the editor. I hadn't written the piece yet. I hadn't thought about writing the piece yet. I had certainly hadn't submitted it if I hadn't written it. And they pretty much said, listen, this decision just came down. Uh, we would love to have uh, an expert write on this. We know your work. We think you're the right person. Would you write something just for us? Uh, and the more senior you get in your career, uh, the more of those type opportunities become Yeah, because you almost like build a name for yourself is what you're telling me. That's exactly right. So in the beginning stage of your career, uh, you're really competing for opportunities 100% based on content. As you build a track record for yourself based on content, as something in your field comes out, there are going to be people that be, I specifically want this guy to write it because we know this guy is the expert. Uh, and then it becomes easier to get published. Uh, but then again, it's just maybe a matter of like so many things in life, you pay your dues, you build positive credentials for them, and then people want you for particular things. Yeah, so speaking, you said you're one of the few people that do talk about fantasy sports law, correct? That is uh, exactly right. I've been um, 
I wrote what, to the best of my knowledge, was the first law review article in the country uh, that went in depth into all of the legal issues in fantasy sports. So I need to I know. Also, I, I also taught the first course in the country on fantasy sports and the law. Uh, at the time, I was a small at a small law school in Central Florida. Uh, it was um, fall 2010, and I taught a seminar fantasy sports and the law, and that was right as the fantasy sports industry was blowing up, and that became an interesting segment of my career. So, what is sports fantasy law? Because I tried to look into it, and there was not much on it. When I tried to look, is it almost like gambling laws? Yeah, or in a way, I mean, it is pretty much the law that relates to the fantasy sports industry. There's some intellectual property, but a lot of it is gambling law. Now, fantasy sports is interesting because every state says that if you want to operate sports gambling, you need to be licensed by the state. But fantasy sports is this weird kind of activity that, in some ways, looks very much like gambling. Uh, but in other ways, it's more of an entertainment activity. In other ways, there are certain elements of skill rather than chance to certain games. Uh, and in essence, it is trying to understand how to operate these contests uh, in such a way that they, up, that they meet the requirements of general lottery and gaming laws, meaning that they have to be games of skill if they have entry fees and prizes. And they can't do certain things that would bring them into the box or rubric that would be considered gambling. It's really about how to launch these contests in a way that you don't fall under certain boxes of behavior that's either illegal uh, or that you would need a special license to do. I see. And the, the, so that the why is that? Why do you think that at least at the start it's not talked about that much, like you said? You know, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one was. You know, before the FanDuel's and the DraftKings of the world emerged, uh, fantasy sports was really a niche business. It was really right around 2010 uh, when these contests that really aren't real fantasy sports but are a little bit close to gambling called Daily Fantasy Sports emerged. Uh, and that got a lot of attention. Now, fantasy sports is now a $5 billion industry. But, you know, not every... In terms of our overall gross domestic product in that country... It's still relatively small. Uh, so you only need so many lawyers to have an expert on any on any area. Now, in the world of law, you have lawyers that are generalists. Uh, those are people who do a little bit of everything, and it's great. They can work on a lot of different things, and they have very broad experience. Uh, but there probably isn't anything that they know exceptionally well. If we think about all the industries out there, the hundreds if not thousands of industries, Fantasy sports is just one of them. I mean, people like it. It might be fun for you to play, but it's just one industry. Now, I have become the expert on some very unusual laws that relate to this very small industry. So I am probably the or one of several national experts on one tiny little dot of the entire business world. And in a way, it's nice. I mean, because if you want to talk about that dot, you're going to find me. I mean, I'm the one who does it. And so, um, yeah. But I mean... That's your typical clients, oh, then, huh? There's so many of these dots out there. Now, when you say so, yeah, so like I'm saying, a, a cli so clients, I guess, that come to you are like these people reaching out to you to to talk about certain uh, idea or like what's the word like? 
Yeah, I mean, it's controversy. One of like, a few, yeah. It's one of a few areas and they often go together. One is they want to launch one of these contests and they want to make sure uh, that when they do it, it's a legal game of skill and not an illegal game of chance. Uh, another is if you play fantasy sports and you go to any of these websites, you know, the websites want to use the players' names. They want to use team names. They often want to use pictures of players. Uh, and there's a whole lot of intellectual property law that applies as well uh, as to where they have the rights to use the pictures they want to use on their site, where they have the rights to use the players' images that they want to use, whether they have the rights to use team logos. Uh, so in addition to the gaming law or gambling law aspect of it, uh, there's a lot of making sure that they have the right to use on their website a lot of the things they want to put on there. And, the, and you're talking about third-party websites, right? Absolutely. You know, so wait, um, what, what about, like, because I do, like, this ESPN fantasy, and is that third-party, or...? Yeah, so, I mean, for example, ESPN is not a client of mine, uh, yeah. but ESPN is the type of company that would be a client of mine. Uh, so it's not the particular players of fantasy sports who come to me. It, for example, somebody wants to create a website and they want to do what ESPN does or they want to do what Yahoo does in offering fantasy sports contests. And my job on behalf of my clients would be very similar to what ESPN's lawyers would be on behalf of their clients, which would be how do we set up this game to allow people like Dylan to play uh, without first having engaged in criminal gambling, and second, to make sure we don't get sued by the players or by the people whose pictures they use. So to make sure or... it's legal. Absolutely. Oh, and since there's so many few experts or dots, like you said, that's when people come to you. That's right. I mean, there are, I mean, for certain types of things in the law, there are tons of people that do. So let's hope this never happens to you. But if you're playing basketball and you're playing on a court and there's a big hole on the court, and due to negligence and keeping up the court, you get hurt. And you need to sue someone based on the industry you have. In New York alone, you'll find thousands and thousands of people that do that type of legal work. Uh, if you want to launch a fantasy sports website, you know in the entire country there are probably about 10 people at most that have real experience having done that and helped a number of companies do that. Uh, so that's why, just as a matter of thumb, uh, when companies invest a lot of money into operating a business, uh, they tend to want to go to lawyers who actually have done this before as opposed to having to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and that's why a lot of these companies come back to me. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm better than anybody else. Uh, it does mean that I was doing certain things before other people thought about doing it. Uh, and sometimes being first at something uh, just gives you a real leg up. Yeah, so, so and you teach about all these laws, correct, you said? Uh, that's right. Um, I teach a number of classes. I teach sports law, but I also I teach antitrust. I and teach you also teach law. Yeah. I teach intellectual property. Uh, so this is a really nice synergy. The things that I've become an academic expert on uh, are also the kind of things that I will help clients do. I mean, I don't pretend to be an expert on all of the law. I'm not an expert on most of the law. 
Um, but people come to me for help with these few important, but few very small areas. Uh, so it's the same things that I teach people how to do in law school and in business school. So yeah, so like intellectual property law, is that related? You also related to sports, I assume. Uh yeah, I mean intellectual property law relates to a wide range of yeah. Can you? I don't know, break that down a little bit, or... Uh, sure, I mean, so when we talk about intellectual property law, uh, you're generally talking about four things. Patents, which are for inventions, which I'm not sure yeah. how much involvement they have with sport. But trademarks, which are for brands and logos. So, like, uh, teams, Copyright, yeah. which is for pictures. And um, right of publicity, which is the right to use someone's image. So, just for example, if I want to create a website... And on the website, I want to have um, Rob. I, I want to have Gronkowski's picture on there, and I want to put on the middle of my fantasy website a big picture of Rob Gronkowski in his Tampa Bay Buccaneers uniform. And the picture was shot by a professional photographer. Yeah, three potential issues before I even get started. One is a copyright issue. Do I have a permission from the photographer to use Gronkowski's picture? Second, he's in a Buccaneers jersey. Is it going to create a problem if I have the Buccaneers logo on the jersey on the page? And third, there's a picture of Rob Gronkowski. Do I need his permission to use that picture? Now, without getting into legal advice here, uh, a lot of this will depend on how I'm using the picture. These are the things that I will help clients with, especially in the fantasy sports industry. I see. So, so it's a so it's not really you don't really talk about like you said patents because that's more inventions, more like you know retail kind of absolutely. Side of and this is where, you know occasionally I'll have a fantasy sports company that will have some novel invention or novel formula, uh, but I. I'm a real expert at a few small things. And part of being an expert at a limited number of things is knowing and understanding that there are a lot of other things I'm not an expert at. Uh, so sometimes I'll have clients that need patents, and I can identify the issue about them probably needing a patent. Uh, but I'm not going to do the patent work. I mean, I know that I'm one of the best in the country in a few very specific things. And that also has made me more humble to realize that in almost everything else, it's not me. It's somebody else or several somebody's else that are real experts at that. So if a client who has a patent need, I don't pretend to be the expert. You'll I refer them. What is somebody else who is. Yeah, so what I was wondering is like, into, so just a quick question. So when you're talking about like these secret like novel inventions, is there like... Like, I'm just like, this is a personal question that I'm just thinking of. So let's imagine, and it's probably not related to sports, but like, let's say, you know, I don't know, like, co you know, Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. like their secret formula for it or whatever. Is that like, like, what is that a copy? No, that's not. A it's like a, like, well, what you is know, that would probably be none of the above. Uh, that would probably fall under a category that's known as trade secrets, which is a trade different secrets. area of intellectual property law. I am the furthest thing from a trade secret. Yeah, yeah. Expert. And one of the things that, for me, 
uh, is so interesting is as I become, and I keep on saying this, as I become older and as I become more of an expert in my little area, uh, I have gained appreciation for the amount of time and energy it takes to truly be an expert at something. And I know I've devoted about 20 years of my career at this point to a few very narrow areas uh, related to sports and gaming law. And when something comes up that's not related to one of these narrow areas, I know there's somebody else in this world that's devoted as much time, if not more, than I have to my areas to one of these other areas. And that's when I step aside. I say part of building a team, an effective team, is finding the people that truly have devoted good chunks of their life to very narrow things. Bring in that person to handle the other issue when that other issue emerges. So yeah, so this is all great, Mark. So let's let's just say like what we hope for in this podcast at least is imagine there's a kid out there they're listening to this. Or like, you know, either they're inspired or they've been already wanting to become like a lawyer or, you know, an attorney. And like, you know, like, I'm just wondering, like, what would you tell them? Like for these kids that maybe want to be experts in, you know, like these little and be these little dots, you know, like how how you were, you know, you know, they don't want to go mainstream, you know, stuff. And they rather go into very specific categories like. What advice would you give them, you know? I, I tell them to figure out what their passion is. Figure out what that area is as soon as they can. I try to figure out who the few other people in the country, if not in the world, are who've done the same thing. Uh, mentorship is key. Uh, I went a long way in life before I found true mentors. I think that I've been very good in life about mentoring others. Uh, I don't think I was necessarily good as someone who is younger about finding my own mentors. I think it's easier now than ever before with all types of social media to find people who do what you want to do and learn. Uh, But I would encourage you to find someone who does what you want to do. Try to reach out to them and at least get some mentorship, a general conversational approach. Uh, I also very seriously to anyone in high school, Work hard and get yourself into the best college that you can get into. Uh, you know, there are days I wonder about whether I had as much fun as I could have in high school. Um, there are certain things I would have done differently, like try to be more social with everybody. Uh, but I'm very proud in hindsight that I worked hard academically. Uh, you can only do as well as your academic ability lets you do, but by getting the most out of what I had, uh, I was able to get myself into a very strong academic college. And especially when you want to do something non-conventional, if you're able to build yourself some credentials and some work experience that are more conventional-looking credentials, uh, I think more people will be willing to take a shot on you when you do something very non-conventional. So you have your whole life in front of you. Try to find some mentorship. Do the best that you can do academically. Really go after your passion. Figure out what you love. And to the extent that you could intern, even if it's unpaid, uh, the experience you get is invaluable just in terms of networking. So even if it's unpaid work, uh, if you think it's a field that interests you, you might not want to intern at 30 when you have a family or you have other issues to take care of. But when you're in high school, if you're able, if you're lucky enough, that your family affords you the financial means where you don't have to contribute substantially to your family income and you can intern, 
Uh, interning and meeting people is a great way to build connections. So just taking everything. The more things you can expose yourself to, uh, the greater it will be on the back end to help you. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, Dylan, my absolute pleasure. So if people want to, you know, learn more about what you do or just you in general, where can, where can they find you? Just uh, Well, the easiest way is probably on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account is at Mark Edelman. That's at M-A-R-C-E-D-E-L-M-A-N, at Mark Edelman. That's a great way to follow what I do. Uh, and I also encourage everyone, especially those in high school, uh, to think about making a LinkedIn profile. Uh, that is a great way to network with people in a more businessy kind of sense. Uh, and you certainly could reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, as well as on Twitter at, at M-A-R-C-E-D-E-L-M-A-N. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. You are very welcome. Have a good evening.